I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been center stage as the federal government marshals resources to fight the coronavirus pandemic. To tell you more about Dr. Fauci, we dipped into the Q&A archives for an interview we recorded with him in March of 2015. When you're dealing in the interface of politics, policy, and and medicine, the thing that I have found to be very effective is be consistent, be totally honest, and don't tell people things that you think they might want to hear. Tell them the truth that is based on evidence. Because even though politicians, be they in the administration or in the Congress, may not be happy with what you tell them because it disappoints them, they will respect you if after a while it's clear to them that you're telling them the truth based on scientific evidence. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and a prominent member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, has become a fixture in America's living rooms during the COVID-19 pandemic. Recent polls give him a higher than 75 percent approval rating for his communication about the crisis. Over the next hour, we'll give you a more in-depth look at this veteran public health official. You'll learn more about Dr. Fauci's life, work, and public health philosophy from his own words. He sat down with Q&A for a profile interview in 2015, and in this program, we'll share much of that conversation with you. Anthony Fauci, now 79 years old, has been in his role with NIH since 1984. He has advised every president since Ronald Reagan. In this first segment, he talks about his working relationships with several of those prior presidents. And following that, we'll show you a portion of a recent interaction between Dr. Fauci and President Trump at the White House on March 29th. Let me show you some video that you probably haven't seen for a long time. This goes back to 1998. It's very quick. It's from the debate, George Herbert Walker Bush and Michael Dukakis, and they're talking about heroes. I agree with the governor on, on athletics, and there's nothing corny about having sports heroes, young people that are clean and honorable and out there setting, a, uh, uh, setting the pace. I think a Dr. Fauci, probably never heard of him. Well, you did, and heard of him. He's a very fine research, top doctor at National Institute of Health, working hard doing something about research on this disease of AIDS. That was 1988. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. What, what was the impact on you when he mentioned that? Well, I didn't know um, that, that. I didn't see the debate. I was out of town coming in on a plane. And the next morning when I walked into the NIH, as I walked into the, to the lobby, people started going like this. And I said, what, what is this all about? I said, what do you mean what's this all about? The president called you a hero during a national debate that was seen by a hundred million people. And I was totally surprised. Did you know him? Oh, well, very well, yeah. I, I, I've had the great privilege uh, of getting to know uh, President George H.W. Bush from the time that he was vice president. And when he was getting ready to run for president, he sincerely wanted to know more about this strange disease called AIDS because, quite frankly and disappointingly, the Reagan administration, of which he was a part, he was the vice president, President Reagan, who was a good man, did not, I believe, use the bully pulpit enough about 
calling attention to, to AIDS. George H.W. Bush felt that this was important. So while he was still vice president, he came to the NIH and wanted to meet me. He said, I want to meet this person, Fauci, who I see around doing all this with AIDS. Show me around. And I spent considerable amount of time with him, introducing him to my patients, talking to him about what HIV is. And we struck up a friendship. And it, it was, you know, one of those great honors that just falls into your lap. As soon as we finished, he would invite me to the vice president's mansion for lunch and for receptions. And then when he became president, uh, it was wonderful because I had a direct uh, input to him. He would call me up or he would invite me to, to lunches. And, and even after he left the presidency, he still would write me notes and he sent me a, uh, a nice letter uh, on my 60th birthday, joking around, saying, I can't believe you're 60 years old. There's no, no chance of that, that kind of thing. He's a wonderful human being. How many presidents have you known personally? Um, essentially, all of them to a different degree. Um, I knew President George H.W. Bush very well. Uh, when President Clinton came in, I got to know him not on the personal friendship where he would invite me over, but got to meet with him and talk with him and with Hillary Clinton when she was first lady and then after when she went on to become senator from New York and then secretary of state, no doubt about that, uh, eight years of that. Uh, then when George W. Bush came in, I had met him originally when he was a staffer in the White House with his father. And we struck up a very good relationship, and I think that that was one of the reasons why he sent me to Africa in 2002 for the purpose of determining the feasibility of developing a program that might transform HIV-AIDS in the developing world. So I got to be quite close with President George W. Bush, related not only to the fact that I knew him through his father, but the fact that he took a very keen interest in global HIV-AIDS and allowed me to be one of the architects of the program which has now transformed uh, HIV globally, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR. And, and luckily now that President Obama is still quite interested and quite amenable to, the, to getting involved in solving the problems that I'm involved with. So I've had the, the, the great privilege of meeting several times at the White House and at the NIH with President Obama. So I've been very fortunate in that the presidents of the United States have been extremely amenable to listening to and helping out with the problems that we face vis-a-vis -vis research and infectious disease. 27 institutes in NIH, and you're just one of the 27. Right. But clearly the most visible, except for maybe Dr. Collins, who runs NIH. How many presidents have asked you to be the director of NIH? Um, George H.W. Bush two or three times, and I, I said no, and he was great. When I said no to him, he said, I understand. Every, people thought that he would get upset with me because I, I said no, and he was wonderful. He says, I respect you for that. Continue to do with what you're doing. When President Clinton became uh, president, uh, his staff asked me if I was interested and said that they've heard uh, that I would really be a very good institute. I explained to them exactly what I did to George H.W. Bush, that even though this would be a great honor, I don't even want them to ask me because I don't want to have to say no. So I took my name out of the hat. 
when George W. Bush became president, he specifically asked me. Uh, and again, I said, as I said to his father, that although this is a great honor and it's a great position, I think I could contribute more to the nation and to the arena of biomedical research by staying in the position I am right now. The modeling put together by Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci and our other top healthcare ex I mean, we have, and these people are amazing, the healthcare experts who in this country are the best in the world. They demonstrate that the mitigation measures we are putting in place may significantly reduce the number of new infections and ultimately the number of fatalities. I want the American people to know that your selfless, inspiring, and valiant efforts are saving countless lives. You are making the difference. The modeling estimates that the peak in death rate is likely to hit in two weeks. So, I'll say it again. The peak, the highest point of death rates, remember this, is likely to hit in two weeks. Nothing would be worse than declaring victory before the victory is won. That would be the greatest loss of all. Therefore, the next two weeks and during this period, it's very important that everyone strongly follow the guidelines, have to follow the guidelines that our great vice president holds up a lot. He's holding that up a lot. He believes in it so strongly. The better you do, the faster this whole nightmare will end. Therefore, we will be extending our guidelines to April 30th to slow the spread. The decision to prolong, not prolong, but to extend this mitigation process until the end of April, I think was a wise and prudent decision. Uh, Dr. Burks and I spent a considerable amount of time going over all the data, why we felt this was a best choice of us, and the president accepted it. And I'm so glad that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks gave us a number. And the number on the outside, and maybe it's not even on the outside, we don't know, is 2.2 million people would have died if we didn't do what we're doing. And now we're looking at numbers that are going to be much, much, much lower than that. They don't want to be stars. You know what they want? They want to win. They want to win the battle against the virus. They've been fighting this stuff their whole life. Between Ebola and uh, swine flu and I don't know. I'm not sure I'd love your life, but that's what you like, right? That's what they do. They fight disease. And you know what? There's nobody that does it better. During our 2015 interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci, he talked more about his work at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He also talked about his role as the public face of the Institute. When did you make a decision and why that you were going to be available to the media? Because there are 27 institutes uh, at the National Institutes of Health, and I could name maybe one or two others. You are always available to answer the questions. Why, why did you decide to do that? Well, it became clear to me that particularly in the discipline that I was dealing with infectious disease, particularly emerging infectious disease that would generate a lot of concern on the part of the public, that could be HIV AIDS, that could be pandemic flu, that could be Ebola, you know, even as most recently now with, with the Ebola crisis. It became clear to me that the public needed to be educated to understand just what these 
issues meant to them personally and to the nation and the world. And I was perplexed by seeing that scientists who shunned away from trying to explain things in plain English the way people could understand it, there was a culture back then when I first started doing it that scientists either didn't want to be bothered with the press or getting involved, or when they did, they spoke over people as opposed to trying to get people to understand. And I made a decision a long time ago that A, was important for the public to understand, and if you really wanted to garner support from the Congress and from the administration, you had to be understood and you had to be in the public eye. Otherwise, it could just slip under the radar screen. And as it turned out, that that was the truth. That was one of the reasons why there was a lot of a, attention paid to it. Do you have a boss? You know, in science, technically speaking, if you look at the, the, the executive branch of the federal government of which I'm in, so obviously the president is the boss, the department I'm in is the Department of Health and Human Services, so the secretary is the next level of the boss, and then there's the NIH, where you have an NIH director in multiple institutes, so technically speaking, that's the boss. So when you're in a scientific and public health, there really is very little of that the boss tells somebody to do something that you might see in another endeavor. It's more of a collaborative discussion, an intellectual um, deciding what the best direction to go is. Technically, someone is administratively your boss, but in reality, it's more of doing the right thing and the best thing and the most appropriate thing. The National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases is responsible. What's the broad scope, and what do those 1,800 people do? Well, it's either both the conduct and the administration and planning of research in all of infectious diseases, as well as in certain immune-mediated diseases like asthma, allergy, and autoimmune diseases. Let so, me stop you and ask you, what is an infectious disease? Well, an infectious disease is one that's caused by a microbe that's transmissible. The, the ones that you know of that are very, very clear, AIDS is an infectious disease caused by HIV, Influenza, a recurrent problem every season. Um, every winter you get an influenza outbreak, and sometimes you get a pandemic that's very serious. Malaria, tuberculosis, childhood diseases, respiratory diseases, diarrheal diseases, sexually transmitted diseases, all diseases that are caused by a microbe that hopefully you could prevent and or treat. Yeah. All right, let me ask you the question, what's a microbe? Yeah, a microbe is, a, is an organism, and it depends on what it is, that has the capability of replicating and being transmitted from one person to another. So bacterias can live more freely. Viruses need to get into a cell to live. So as we look at the world as an outsider, a generalist, and you see the CDC, you see your institutions, the NIH, the World Health Organization, who's in charge? No one needs to be in charge. Each has their own goal. And I think within the federal government, I, I, it's relatively easy to explain. So take the Department of Health and Human Services, the three most commonly recognized organizations that have to do with health and research are the CDC, the NIH, and the FDA. The CDC are the disease detectives. They do the surveillance. 
They track down disease. They recognize the outbreaks of new disease. They track them. They're very active with the Ebola outbreak right now in West Africa. They're very active when you have a flu season or an outbreak of West Nile fever. The NIH is pure research. So when there's a disease, what we do in my institute, when you're thinking of infectious disease, is we understand how that disease evolves. We develop drugs. We develop vaccines. We do prevention modalities. So we do the research that allows you to intervene. The Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, is the regulatory agency. And they make the regulation of approval or monitoring of drugs or interventions. That's within our own government. When you go globally, WHO is kind of like a global CDC of what the CDC is for us. They sort of coordinate health globally throughout the various nations. These numbers may be off. You can correct any of them. Since 1978, you've had 490 major lectureships, 33 visiting professorships, and 31 honorary degrees. Uh, any of those numbers go up? The honorary degrees have gone up to, to what number? 38, 39. Where do you find time for all this? Um, well, you said it in the beginning. I, I don't sleep much. <laughs> it's really four and a half hours a yeah, night? Yeah, about five but, at the most. No yeah. doctor would tell you to only get four and a half hours of sleep. No, that's true. It isn't the healthiest thing in the world, but when you physiologically get used to it, you get used to it, and that's it, and you wake up and you're fine. So but when do you find time for all the lectureships? and the, um, You know, I, I tend to do lectures that are, I think, important in their impact. I, do, I really do, honestly, no boondoggling. For example, if someone says, well, we're having a meeting in St. John's in the Virgin Islands. We want you to go and talk about H. I won't do that. If there is a national meeting where you are going to impart important information to a group of scientists. I may or may not do that. I pick and choose enough so that I'm not so often away from my office that I would lose effectiveness. I'm very, very careful about not over-traveling. I do things that you could do in one day, you know, fly up, do it, come right back the same day. I don't do things, well, let's go out to a meeting at a ski resort and you give a talk and you stay there for three or four. I just zero do that. It's always in and out. And when you do that, you can be pretty economical for your time. You're 74. Right. How long are you going to work? I'm just going to keep doing it until I, I'm not effective. And right now I'm as energetic and I believe as effective as I've ever been. So. Who determines how long you stay there? Uh, you get reviewed every few years by a committee, an outside committee, that reviews you and determines your effectiveness. Uh, and if it turns out you're not effective, then the recommendation is that you step down. So when there someday is a new director of your institute and he or she comes in and meets you and sits before you and says, tell me what I should look out for. And we're not talking about medicine, we're talking politics. Yeah. As the head of this institution right. for over 30 years, what would you tell yeah. them? Well, when you're dealing in the interface of politics, policy, and, and medicine, the thing that I have found to be very effective is be consistent, be totally honest, and don't tell people things that you think they might want to hear. Tell them the truth 
that is based on evidence. Because even though politicians, be they in the administration or in the Congress, may not be happy with what you tell them because it disappoints them, they will respect you if after a while it's clear to them that you're telling them the truth based on scientific evidence. So that is the one thing that I would emphasize to anyone who follows me, that that's how you can be successful in getting good science to drive policy. What do you tell them about dealing with Congress? Be clear. Uh, Don't try to razzle-dazzle them. Don't talk down to them. Don't feel that because you're a scientist, you're so superior that you could talk over their heads. The most important thing is for the Congress to understand and appreciate what you're doing and the importance of your work. So there's a balance between talking down to someone and not talking in such an esoteric way that someone doesn't have a clue of what you're talking about. You've got to do that balance where you can make the person feel that they really understand what you're talking about. They will like that because people like to learn. They'll feel good about that. They say, well, I've learned something today. And they'll also respect you for being able to explain it to them. We're spending this hour on Q&A looking at the life, work, and public health philosophy of Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and a leading voice in the coronavirus response in the United States and globally. Dr. Fauci has been director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases since 1984 under President Reagan. His first major challenge as director was dealing with the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the United States. In this segment, he's talking about that experience. Have you ever had the feeling that something was going to get away from us when it came to one of these crises and disease? Not that it was going to get away from us, but that it was going to be much more serious than anyone anticipated. And that really started off right from the very beginning of my career as the director of the Institute. Uh, When I first started seeing and taking care of HIV-infected individuals before we even knew it was HIV in the very early 80s, 1981, the fall, winter of 81 into 82. It was very clear that this was something we had never seen before, and it was completely unpredictable what was going to happen. And I got involved very early on and was concerned that many people in and out of government were considering this just a fluke among gay men that's some strange disease. But the way I saw it evolve and following it, it was quite scary. And unfortunately, my concerns were well-founded because it turned out historically to be and is today one of the most devastating historic pandemics that we've ever experienced, civilization has ever experienced. When did you personally recognize this? Not, you know, maybe it was an aha moment? Yeah, there was an aha moment. The aha moment was, it was the early summer of 1981, and the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, every week puts out something called Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, which is a almost a pamphlet which gives you heads up on diseases or patterns of disease like a flu is coming or a little outbreak of this. And they reported on their June 5th, uh, 1981 MMWR, five men from Los Angeles who presented with a very unusual kind of pneumonia that you only see in people who have dramatically suppressed immune systems. 
And I looked at it and said, wow, five gay men. Why all gay men? And why this strange disease that you almost never see in healthy people? And they, they were supposedly completely healthy other than that. I thought it was a fluke, and I put it aside. And then one month later, on the July 4th of 1981, the next MMWR appeared on my desk at the NIH. I was sitting there reading it, and they said, now 26 men, not only from L.A., but from San Francisco and New York, with not only this strange pneumonia, but this strange kind of cancer that you only see in people who are immunosuppressed. And the thing that blew me away is that all of them were gay men. And I said, whoa, something is going on here that's really bad. And this is likely a new disease. I had no idea what it was. I didn't, I, yeah, it, it looked very much like it was an infectious disease because when you looked at the patterns, it seems to have been spread by sexual contact. And that's when I really had a combination of an aha moment and an anxiety reaction where I was saying, this is going to be bad. And I made a, what I consider the transforming decision in my own career. I decided I was going to stop what I had been doing rather successfully for the previous nine or ten years and devote myself completely to studying what I felt would be a, an enormously difficult disease. And it unfortunately turned out that that was the case. When you look back at that period, I know I've read that people were mad at you in your own uh, operation. Who got mad at you for what reason that you took gays in and right. had them involved in the discussion? Well, it was a combination. First of all, in a well-meaning way, my mentors, the people who had cultivated me in science and in academics, uh, thought I was being foolish, throwing away a very promising career in one area of medical research to go after something that they thought was going to disappear. This is just a fluke. It's going to go away. Later on, as I began to take a leadership role um, in not only the research, but when I became director of the Institute of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in 1984, there were people who were concerned and, uh, and I would say bordering on being angry with me in that it was clear that I wanted to put more resources in this because even though it was still very early in the history of the pandemic, I wanted to get more government resources, I wanted more research, and it became clear to me that we needed to embrace the gay community, the activists, to get a better feel for what was going on in the trenches with them. And there was a lot of resentment towards me on that, resentment on the part of the scientists because they thought I was going to divert resources away from other important areas of infectious diseases. And I was arguing, I don't want to divert resources. I want to get new resources. I want to argue before the Congress and before the president about why we needed more resources for this disease. So that was that area of resentment. And then the idea of activists playing a major role in some of the decision and policy making in a research program was completely foreign and antithetical to many scientists. Uh, at the time, it was, well, this is, we're puristic scientists. We'll make the decisions about what needs to be done. We don't need to involve the community in this. And I thought that that was not a good idea because the community had a lot to offer. They were the ones that were suffering. It was an unknown disease. The rigidity of the regulatory process of getting drugs approved quickly that were experimental drugs that showed some efficacy was all a changing paradigm. We hadn't experienced that before. 
Here you are in 1990 uh, at a town hall meeting. In the 1990s, we will be seeing some revolutionizing of the way we look at the treatment of HIV because the end of the 1980s uh, has created the concept that you'll see in the 90s of early intervention, namely treating people early on before they develop full-blown disease, prophylaxing them against opportunistic infections, to hopefully have the goal of the decade of the 90s to convert HIV infection into a chronic manageable infection whereby you can test someone, counsel them, get them into the care of a physician, and treat them with a combination of drugs early enough on in the course of infection so that you might have a situation like many other chronic diseases where there's the feasibility of a reasonable, comfortable lifespan. 25 years later, here we are. What happened? It happened. It happened. We, we were fortunate. We have drugs right now that when given to people who are HIV infected, if someone comes in, and, and I could show you the, the dichotomy, in the early 80s, if someone came in to my clinic with AIDS, uh, their median survival would be six to eight months, which means they would be, half of them would be dead in eight months. Now, if tomorrow, when I go back to rounds on Friday, and someone comes into a clinic who's 20 plus years old, who's relatively recently infected, and I put them on the combination of three drugs, the cocktail of highly active antiretroviral therapy, I could accurately predict, look them in the eye and say, we could do mathematical modeling to say that if you take your medicine regularly, you could live an additional 50, five, zero years. So to go from knowing that 50% of the people are gonna die in eight months to knowing that if you take your medicines, you could live essentially a normal lifespan, just a little bit, a few years less than a normal lifespan. That's a huge advance. As he did with the HIV AIDS crisis and later epidemics, Dr. Fauci has to negotiate the politics of the coronavirus response as he deals with this latest crisis. In this next clip, we see him at the White House podium trying to avoid the political fray. Interesting to hear if you'd like to talk about the world uh, WHO, but the fact is that uh, I have heard for years that that is very much biased toward China. So I don't know. You want me to get you into this political mess? No, I don't want you to do that, but I will. <laughs> um, so uh, Tedros is really a, an outstanding person. I've known him from the time that he was the Minister of Health of Ethiopia. I mean, obviously, over the years, uh, anyone who says that the WHO has not had problems has not been watching the WHO. But I think under his leadership, they've done very well. He has been all over this. I was on the phone with him a few hours ago leading a WHO call. Crazy China's transparency, no, sir? No, I'm not, tra- I'm not talking about China. You asked me about Tedros. Uh, what World Health Organization praising China for its transparency and leadership on their response to the pandemic? You know, I, I can't comment on that because, I mean, that, I, I don't have any viewpoint into it. I mean, I don't, I don't even know what your question is. Right. Can, I, can I follow up on that phone call? I want to uh, apologize for my curt response to you when you asked me about the China deal. Because I shouldn't have done that. That's not my style. But... What I really wanted to say is that my job is that I'm a scientist, I'm a physician, and I'm a public health person, and I don't like to get involved in that stuff. So anyway. I'm a scientist, I'm a physician, I'm a public health person. So where did Dr. Fauci's desire to serve the public come from? He provided some insights on the answer to that during his 2015 Q&A interview. Let's watch. 
The first doc in your family was your father, who was a pharmacist. Right. Tell us about him. Where, where did where did all this happen? Where did you Where were you born? Well, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, um, in the Bensonhurst section, which was a uh, back then and maybe even now. Brooklyn, if you took an aerial photo and looked at different sections, they were ethnically, ethnically divided. There was the Italian-American section and the Irish section, the African-American section, the Puerto Rican section, etc. Uh, so I was in an Italian-American section called Bensonhurst, and it was a very family-oriented, very warm, uh, nurturing area to live in. My father is first generation. His father was born in Italy, came to the United States at the turn of the century, at the turn of the Uh, 19th to 20th century. Um, My father was raised early on in Little Italy section of of New York and Manhattan, moved to Brooklyn, and then our family was raised in Brooklyn. He went to Columbia University College of Pharmacy, became a pharmacist, and that's what he did for all his life. So that's how you got the name Doc. Right. They called him Doc. Back then, pharmacists were called Doc because a little bit different than it is now, Many people who either couldn't afford to go to a doctor or didn't want to take the time of making an appointment would go in to their neighborhood pharmacy and explain their symptoms. And my father never overstepped his bounds. If somebody needed to see a physician, he would say, you better go see a physician. But often he would give them the advice they needed to take care of what minor ailment they had. Mom, what was mom's background? She, my mother uh, went to Hunter College in, uh, in New York City and got married at a very early age. In fact, my mother and father, interestingly, got married right out of high school. So my father went through uh, pharmacy school and my mother went through Hunter College, both married. And as soon as they had, my mother gave birth to my sister, who's three years older than I and then me, uh, she became a, a homemaker for her whole life. The Jesuits taught you high school, college, Holy Cross, right. Regis High School in Manhattan. What what impact, what does it mean to be taught by Jesuits? We hear about Jesuits all the time. Well, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a great experience, I have to say. They combine um, intense intellectualism with uh, discipline, not in the sense of, you know, smacking you around, but intellectual rigor discipline in how you handle yourself as a person, as a human being. And they have a a general motto of, and I think this had a major influence on me and what I did, is the issue of service to others. That's very big. That doesn't mean that people who don't go into public service are doing anything lesser with their lives, but they tend to have a, 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 I wouldn't say a pushing, but a leaning towards something about what you do is public service. Either everything you do, which turned out what I did by going into public service, or at least a part of your life. So it was a it was an interesting combination of concern for mankind as well as a good intellectual rigor. When did you want to be a doctor? Can you remember the time? I think it was early high school. I, I, I'm very interested in people. I'm a very much of a people person. And probably as part of the Jesuit training, which was very steeped in the classics and the humanities. So when I went to Regis High School, we took four years of Greek, four years of Latin, a Romance language and ancient history and things like that. When I went to Holy Cross, which is another Jesuit school as a college, 
Um, I took kind of a hybrid pre-med course. It was called, it's almost an oxymoron, it was called AB Greek Classics Dash Pre-Med. So you were majoring in the humanities and the classics with a lot of philosophy, but you took enough science to get into medical school. And the idea about when I wanted to become a doctor, I liked science, I liked discovery, I liked the uh, challenges of science, but I also so much liked mankind and the humanities that it was just a natural fit that where do you put science and people in the same bucket? And to me, that was medicine. Who was an early mentor? Um, probably some of the very young uh, Jesuits in um, Regis High School. In the Jesuit training, it's a long, long training before you become a Jesuit priest. And back then, they were had what's called scholastics, with people who weren't yet ordained as priests, but they dressed with the garb of a priest, and they taught in, in the high school. And there were a couple of those scholastics who had a, a major impact on me, just great people, highly intellectual and highly nurturing of you and what you wanted to do. You did an interview with Science Magazine back in 2003, and they lead off this by saying, Anthony S. Fauci, let's see, works 14 hours a day, jogs for lunch, eats dinner with his family after nine, and continues working until bedtime when he sleeps for about four and a half hours. How much of that is still true? It's still true. Uh, I'd say fortunately or unfortunately, I think fortunately, it still is. Um, I, I do that. I work a lot of hours. I work most of the weekend. I, I don't do it as a drag. I do it because I like it and I'm energized by what I'm doing. We fortunately, uh, likely through the creativity and the tolerance of my wife, who also works at the NIH and is the chair of one of the departments there, of the Department of Bioethics, Clinical Bioethics, that we arrange our schedule when the children were growing up that even though it isn't particularly healthy to eat dinner late at night, I, I, I preach to people about that. The only way we could, as a family, really be together every single day was when I would come home at quarter to nine, nine o'clock, my children who would get out of school at three, most of them played sports and did things after, they would come home and have a snack and then wait for me to come home and we would have dinner together. They would either study more or go to bed and I would go into my office and continue to work until midnight and go to bed and get up at around five o'clock. How old are those kids now and what are they doing? My eldest is... 28, and she's a PhD student in clinical psychology at Boston College. She graduated from Harvard and then taught in the inner city uh, minority areas in New York City and in Washington, D.C., and then went for further graduate training. So now she's in a PhD program because she got interested in clinical psychology. My middle daughter is 25, and she's a first-year medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. And my youngest just graduated from Stanford as a computer scientist, and she's working in San Francisco for Twitter. So she's a computer geek. Please tell us the story of meeting your wife. <laughs> well, um, I had been at the NIH for, oh, about 10 years or so, and I just happened to have made a trip 
to uh, China for a meeting, for a scientific meeting. And while I was away, the NIH, because it was the very beginning of the HIV AIDS pandemic, uh, hired a nurse who was a clinical nurse specialist. So my wife started off as a nurse before she got her PhD in, in, in ethics. And she came to the NIH, and I didn't even know she was a new nurse because I was away for that week. And one of my patients um, was a person from Brazil who only spoke Portuguese. And my wife had just come back a few months earlier from two years with Project Hope in Maceo in Brazil, and she was totally fluent in Portuguese. So as I was talking to the patient, I wanted to tell the patient the patient had to go home, had to go rest, couldn't do activities, couldn't drink, couldn't indulge because he was just recuperating. And I told him that I needed somebody to translate. And they said, oh, we just have this new nurse who just came back from Brazil. She could translate. So I told her, I says, tell him he's got to do A, B, C, D, and E. And she turned around and she spoke to him in Portuguese. And I found out later that he told her to tell the doc that there's no way, the first thing I'm going to do when I get back there, I'm going to go to, to the Copacabana Beach, I'm going to play around, I'm going to have some cachaça, and I'm going to have a ball. I've been in this place too long. And she was horrified. She didn't want to say that. So she turned to me and said, he said, fine, he's going to do that. And I didn't know. I believed her. So when I looked at her, she was just this very attractive young nurse. And I said, hmm, very interesting. I was single, so I... Uh, went back to my office about a few days later. I told the head nurse, could you tell that nurse, uh, Miss Grady, to come to my office? I want to talk to her. She thought she was going to get fired because she thought that I had found out that she misled me about the patient. So she walked into my office completely petrified that she was in trouble. And she sat there looking very nervous. I couldn't figure out why she was nervous. So I looked at her and I said, well, you know, I didn't realize that you had come here until just last week. I said, would you like to go out for dinner sometime? And she almost <laughs> fell right, right through the chair. And she said, uh, of course I will. And we got married a year later. In the same interview, uh, they ask you the question in the science interview. You attended two Jesuit-run schools. Are you a man of faith? Let me read to you what you said, if you don't remember. Broadly and generically, I am not a regular church attender. I have evolved into less a Roman Catholic religion person to someone who tries to keep a degree of spirituality about them. I look upon myself as a humanist. I have faith in the goodness of mankind. What would, is that still accurate? Totally accurate today. What does that say to the Jesuit education? They, they, did they talk you right out of the church? No, it isn't that they talked me right out of the church, but I'm less enamored of organized religion than I am with the principles of humanity and goodness to mankind and doing the best that you can. I think that there are a lot of things about organized religion that are unfortunate, uh, and uh, I tend to like to stay away from that and think more in terms of the principles that I learned from the Jesuits, from the Catholic religion, the principles that I r run my life by. But uh, uh, the idea about the organization of religion is not something that I adhere to very much. COVID-19 is sometimes compared to past pandemics like SARS and H1N1. As we conclude our look at Dr. Anthony Fauci's life and work on infectious diseases, let's hear from him about how those past pandemics ended and about the effectiveness of vaccines. 
In 2003, you testified before the Senate about another subject. The pathogenesis means how does this microbe cause its pathological effect, the genesis of the pathology. And that's what we're going to be studying very intensively now that we have the virus, because we're not sure at this point whether it's the virus itself that's causing all the damage in the lungs of the individuals, or if it's the virus together with what would be a normal immune response, but in some diseases, the immune response itself causes damage. We have certain infections in which a certain type of an immune response can actually make the pathological effect worse. We see that in some cases of respiratory syncytial virus, in some cases of measles. So it's important for us to nail down the pathogenesis. The big item is vaccines. Do you remember uh, of course, you remember SARS, but do you remember uh, when you talk to a group like this, how do you talk to the language? Sometimes right. you just get the average person gets right. lost. Well, <laughs> you, you have to make sure you are un, you're understood. And I I make it a very important goal that you don't want to make you don't want to impress people and razzle dazzle them with your knowledge. You just want them to understand what you're talking about. And what I happened think, to SARS then? What's it, where is it now? SARS essentially disappeared. SARS came, we isolated the virus, we started to make a vaccine, which was successful. It looked pretty good in, in an animal model. And then all of a sudden, pure public health measures suppressed it and it went away. It was one of those diseases that are very common, which is a disease that's fundamentally an animal disease, and it jumps species from the animal to the human. And sometimes it's trivial and nothing happens and one person gets infected, but sometimes it adapts itself to the human and it spreads from human to human. That's what SARS did. But once you suppressed it, it essentially stopped because the next one that jumped into human didn't have the capability of spreading easily from person to person. So we, we dodged the bullet with SARS, we did. Back in 2005, you were talking about another issue. Importantly, the virus has evolved to be able to jump from chicken to human, still very, very inefficiently. So it's not something where it easily does that. And there have been real rare, like one or two cases, that have been definitively confirmed that it goes human to human. So it still is a virus that has not been able to assume the capability of becoming a real classical pandemic. But when you see this smoldering activity going on, the migratory birds, then it's not just Southeast Asia, it's Russia, Kazakhstan. Now we're talking about Romania and Turkey. So the bird flu, the infections of the birds, they're not going away. So the conditions that would be amenable to a pandemic are not resolving themselves. In fact, they're getting worse. So that is also a reason for the accelerated current activity. What happened to bird flu? Well, it, it went away. Um, so over the last few years, there have been these blips of a virus that's fundamentally a bird or another animal virus that jumps to a human but it doesn't adapt itself to easily go from human to human. So you will see cases of H5N1, H7N9, things that are not human viruses, they're fundamentally animal viruses that will jump. The thing you have to worry about 
is that if it jumps enough, will it by evolution adapt itself to all of a sudden start saying, I like being in a human and essentially transmit more and more? That particular virus didn't do that. It just stayed in a very inefficient way from bird to human, rarely and never going from human to human in any meaningful way. I want to read the first paragraph of a New York Times article from January the 7th. This is by Denise Grady. An unusual method for producing antibiotics may help solve an urgent global problem. The rise in infections that resist treatment with commonly used drugs and the lack of new antibiotics <clears throat> excuse me, to replace ones that no longer work. I know you know this story. Uh, if the medicine, if I pronounce it correctly, it's Texobactin. You got it. Uh, Correct. And uh, it's Dr. The lead author, author on this was Dr. Kim Lewis from Northeastern University. Did you play a role in this, and what is it? Well, this uh, our institute funded the research, and this is another example of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Not only do we do research, but most of what we do is we give grants to very competent scientists, like the scientists in this question, who do this. So we did have our, quote, fingerprints on this. This is a very interesting finding because we do have a significant problem with antibiotic resistance now, today, in the modern day. Uh, and if we continue to have a problem with microbes becoming more and more resistant and not a new class of antibiotics to meet the challenge, we could get in trouble. So things that would normally be easily treatable could become untreatable. So whenever we get a situation where you have a new class of antibiotics that could counter the emergence of resistance, that's something you want to pursue very vigorously, which, which is what we're going to do. The flu. Yes. A lot of people I know uh, got the flu shot. People over 65 got a double dose or the new dose or whatever it is. And I've known a ton of people that came down with the flu. Uh, lots and lots of money was spent on right. uh, the flu vaccine, and it, it didn't work. Right. Well, it's not working optimally, that's for sure, because each year you make a calculated guess based on information that you gather of what's circulating towards the end of the season of your season and what's going on in the Southern Hemisphere. Who makes that guess? WHO, in coordination with a group of a number of people, including CDC, but it's mostly a WHO type World of health decision. Right. World Health Organization. Right. World, yeah, World Health Organization. And they have to make that decision in February of the prior season, because in order to start manufacturing the influenza vaccine, it takes about six months so that by the middle to end of the summer, it's ready. You start distributing it in the fall, and then it's ready for the winter season. At the time the decision was made for this 2014-2015 season, they thought that this particular strain of H3N2, which is a designation of certain types of influenza, would be one type. As soon as they started manufacturing the vaccine, about a month and a half later, it became clear that the virus was drifting, and that means mutations and drifting, so that by the time you got to the flu season, the majority of the strains didn't match what was in the vaccine. Now, that's the bad news. The somewhat comforting news is that you still can get good benefit from vaccination, even though there is not a perfect match, because there's what's called cross-protection. 
So if I get vaccinated against an H3N2, that's not the exact one that's circulating in the community, I could still get a certain degree of protection. I might not be protected against getting infected, but I might be protected against getting serious disease or hospitalization. Do you get a flu shot? I do, every year. Do you ever get the flu? Well, I've gotten the flu in the past. I got the flu in the mid to late 70s, and I was sicker than I've ever been. I I did get the flu vaccine that season, so it didn't work on me, but it seems to have worked since then. I haven't gotten influenza in um, several years now. As you sit at your desk every day, what is your number one concern way out there? Well, my one number one concern way out there is the idea of emerging and re-emerging infections that we haven't been exposed to before that spread by a respiratory route. Um, so pandemic influenza that's really serious is something that bothers me and worries me a bit. And that's one of the reasons why one of the real priorities that we're working on right now in my institute is to develop what's called a universal influenza vaccine. A universal influenza vaccine is one that you can take once or a couple of times in your lifetime, and it would cover all the strains of influenza. So you don't have to play this guessing game each year where you have to change your vaccine or maybe every year or two and keep getting vaccinated every year. If you can get a universal flu vaccine where you give it a few times the way you would give a measles vaccine and forever be protected or a polio vaccine and forever be protected... That's the thing we need to do. How close are you? You know, I wouldn't say it's tough to predict. It's, it's foolish to say we're going to have it in X number of years. But we've made some breakthroughs in the last three or four years that encourage me to think that within a reasonable period of time, we may have some form of a universal flu vaccine. As we close, a reminder that the Dr. Fauci profile is available to watch online in its entirety at C-SPAN.org, as are all our Q&A interviews and, in fact, all of C-SPAN's programming. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.